Good evening. Welcome. Thank you for coming back tonight as we begin our series on the book of Ephesians. We will be taking our normal approach of working through the text verse by verse, but tonight we have arranged things just slightly differently because uh, many of you know that in the original verses 3 through 21 is one long sentence. And uh, you can get caught up in all the grammar and uh, trying to figure out how things fit together. So tonight I decided that I am just going to approach these verses by looking at its main point, which is the doctrine of election, and uh, really explain the doctrine of election. We'll make it through all these uh, verses, uh, but we won't be looking at them necessarily in order uh, but uh, I'm going to be looking at them thematically. And uh, I'll be emphasizing what I have in bold. So I may not always be reading the entire verse. Uh, we'll come back to sections in the verses that, that I haven't read. Uh, so we'll cover the material, but we won't do it word by word as we normally do. So let me begin by uh, telling you what is meant by election. According to the faith and order, this is the... Uh, definition that election is given. Election is a free act of the sovereign God in which from eternity, for reasons known only to himself, and apart from any foreseen faith and or goodness found in man, he graciously chose from among the fallen mankind a people unto salvation, that they might be conformed to Christ's image, those so chosen he redeemed by his Son and seals by his Spirit. So tonight I'm going to address the question, why is it important to study, understand, and embrace the doctrine of election? Uh, what is it that we are to gain from that study? Uh, why is it important to embrace that, that doctrine? Why is it significant? Well, first and foremost is because it's taught in the scriptures. God is not ashamed of the doctrine of election, and neither should we. Uh, the scriptures are, are filled with verses that relate to this particular subject. And in fact, rather than God being ashamed or embarrassed of the doctrine of election, it is to be understood as bringing glory to God. So quite the opposite of what many people's concept is, that this does not in any way defame or belittle who God is, but rather it's to the praise of his glory. So if you look at the verses that are listed there, uh, I'll give you verse uh, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame, blameless before him in love. So let me look at these bolden words. He chose us, he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. So the outcome is to be the, the praise of God's grace. First, it brings glory to God, providing us with a proper perspective of God. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed teaches us that God is to be adored, a source of delight. It is a response of the heart that says, isn't God good? My, how wonderful God is. That is what should result. That should be our understanding of who God is. God is wonderfully good. He is blessed. Secondly, it brings glory to God by eliciting our praise of God. The end of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. So it begins by talking about blessed is God, and it results in our giving praise to God. We'll unpack the reason as to why that is. But this is a glorious doctrine bringing praise to God. Secondly, it is important to study, understand, and embrace the doctrine of election so that we would more fully comprehend the basis of the blessings that we enjoy as a people of God. Why is it that God blesses us? How can we be assured of his blessings? Well, the first thing we need to note is that God has blessed us already. If you look at verse 3, 
It says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has blessed us. Not that he is going to bless us, but he has already blessed us. God has blessed us in, through, and because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So the blessings come in our association with Christ. That association of being in, through, and because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. Number one, in Christ means in union with Christ. It is in our union or connection to Christ that we are blessed. It is because we belong to him. We have been united to him. The benefits of what Jesus has done and accomplished are applied to us. So notice these bolden words. That even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. So it's in connection to Christ. That as Christ accomplished these things, they are applied to us because of our connection to him. Number two, Christ is the sole basis of our being blessed. Uh, it isn't about what we have done or it isn't about what we will do, but it's totally about what Jesus Christ has done, what he has accomplished. Next, God has blessed us with every single blessing there is. He has left nothing out. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, and now with these words, with every spiritual blessing. <clears throat> he already has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There's nothing yet to attain. There's nothing yet to achieve. There isn't something now that we have to add to this or something that we have to accomplish or uh, something that we have to seek after. Uh, every spiritual blessing, without exception, without exception. They come because of our union with Christ. And then D, God has blessed us in the sphere of his own personal domain, which comes in the end of verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. Again, Ephesians 2, 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the place in which we experience these blessings are in the heavenly places. They're not here on this earth. These aren't things that right now we are going to fully experience but they are going to be experienced when we are in his presence in heavenly places. Thirdly, <clears throat> it is important to study, understand, and embrace the doctrine of election to more fully comprehend the surety of our blessedness. That we can have confidence that we will indeed experience all these blessings. Hey, we're sure to be blessed because God has chosen us to be united to Christ. We said that these blessings come in our being in union with Christ. We die with him, we are raised with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Well, the basis of that union and how we know that we're connected to Christ is that God chose to unite us to Christ. Ephesians 1.4 Even as he chose us in him. The emphasis is that God chose us, not that we chose God. John 15.16 says it pretty clearly. You did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The being united to Christ is the result of God's activity. It's the result of God's choice. He chose us in him. B, we are sure to be blessed because he chose us even before anything was made. It emphasizes the passivity of our being chosen. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, before this earth, this universe existed, God chose us to be united to Jesus Christ. So number one, note the perfect tense that's found in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus, who has blessed us? Who has blessed us? The emphasis of the perfect tense is simply this. This is a blessedness that occurred in the past and continues to be experienced now and into the future. That's the whole aspect of what a perfect tense is. It is the result of what has happened. And that choice, that benefit continues not only to this day, but all eternity future. That choice has consequences, eternal, everlasting consequences that are irrevocable. C, we are sure to be blessed because God will find no fault with us when we stand before him. Ephesians 1.4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, with this benefit that we should be holy and blameless before him. That was the goal of his choosing us. That was the object. That, that was the reason, the purpose, that we would be blameless when we stand before him. We will be holy when we stand before him. The assurance that we'll be blameless and holy is because he chose us in Christ. We were united to Christ. We experience all that Christ has done for us. So this great plan of God is going to be fully materialized. Romans 8, 33 and 34 put it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us all. So we can be assured that when we stand before God, we will be faultless. We will be blameless. Our sins will be remembered no more. D, we are sure to be blessed because God predetermined to make us part of his family. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined, which means to be, be pre, uh, uh, determined. He predetermined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Number one, the Greek word translated as predestined means to decide upon beforehand, uh, to choose beforehand. Two, God decided beforehand, before the foundation of the world and before we were born, to make us his own even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The us refers to the saints. Uh, the beginning of Ephesians says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by will of God, to the saints who are, are at Ephesus, the believers. So the us is referring to us believers. He chose us, again, before the foundation of the world. Um, in Romans chapter 9... The passivity, again, is given of uh, the choice when it says, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, even though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who works, she was told the older shall serve the younger. All of this language, before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, before we were born, God chose us. And I don't know how more clear that could be stated to demonstrate our passivity, to say, you know, we didn't have anything to do with this. You think about the physical realm. None of us had anything to do with our being born. We were the recipients of our parents' choice. We were the product of what they decided to do and, and uh, how they decided to come together and, of course, ultimately the sovereign of God. But the point is, we weren't consulted. We weren't asked to be born. The emphasis is that this all took place not only even before we were born, but even before the world was made. Now, there are those that don't believe in election, and they say that the God looked down a quarter of time, saw what choice we would make, and then chose us, chose us based on what choice he would see. But you can understand from the text that that is far from what the scriptures present. It isn't saying God looked down a quarter of time and he knew what choice you would make and therefore he chose you. No, before anything existed, before you existed, before I existed, God had a plan, God made a choice. E, we are sure to be blessed because in choosing us, God set his love upon us. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God's love for his own is a very unique love. I have already read Romans 9, 10 through 12, so let me jump to verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is one of the most uh, debated verses in the scripture, and people say, well, what do we do with that? How do we understand that? Jacob I loved, Esau of I hated. Number two, much has been written on the subject of God's love for Jacob and God's hatred of Esau. We need to understand this verse in a comparative manner. The love that God has for Jacob so far exceeds his love, and that should be for Esau, that in comparison, it is like love for Jacob and hatred for Esau. For an example of this comparative use of love, hate, note Luke chapter 14, verse 26, that reads as follows. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's strong language. Unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Surely, we are not to hate our wives. However, our love for God is to be so great that in comparison, our love for our wives is closer to hatred, okay? So we're talking about a spectrum here. And on this spectrum, God's love is so great. How do you, how do you describe the greatness of God's love? Later we're gonna see in this passage that pr the prayer is that we might be able to understand the love of God. What is the breadth, the width, the height, the depth? How, to try to get our, our minds around the love of God. How do you do that? How, can you comprehend what God's love is? Well, God loves us so much 
that if we compare God's love for us and our love for our wives, it's closer to God's love and our hatred. That's how vastly different God's love is from our love. Now, to show you that that's biblically true, B, it's quite significant that in this very book of Ephesians, the admonition that husbands are to love their wives is founded upon Christ's unique love for the church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Luke says, unless you hate your wives. Ephesians says, husbands, love your wives. With this caveat, end of verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, we know that we're to love all mankind, including our enemies. That does not, however, mitigate the fact that we are to love our own wives in a unique way, distinguishable from and far superior to other loves. Now just think about that for a moment, right? We are to love our enemies. And the scripture calls us to love our wives. Certainly, the love for our wives is to be greater than our love for our enemies. We can make that distinction. I hope we can. And see that, that there's a, a different way, there's a different degree that we are to love our wives from the way that we love our enemies. And the scripture uses that to talk about Christ's love for the church, which is distinguishable from and far superior to other loves. So we, in a sense, can talk about God loving everyone. But we need to understand that when God loves the elect, it's an incredibly different, richer, fuller love. It's really unique. There is a book that just comes to mind. I should have looked it up, but I didn't think of it. But uh, there is a very good book that's written by uh, D.A. Carson uh, entitled uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And he goes through, and I think he depicts seven or eight different kinds of love that is found in the scriptures talking about God's love. So it's comparative. It's comparative. We use it all the time. This morning I talked about loving to eat. Well, that's different from loving my wife which is different from loving the Lord. Uh, we need to understand the comparative nature. Three, the assurance of God's abiding love for us who are in Christ is wonderfully articulated in Romans chapter eight. It's important to keep in mind the pronouns we and, and us refer to the elect. Romans eight thirty-one and following. What then shall separate, uh, excuse me, what then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, and notice the word us, all. It says something quite different if you take the word us out. He did not spare his son, but gave him up for all. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who in, indeed is interceding for us. Christ is interceding for his people, the elect. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says specifically, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world so that there can be no confusion. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or wickedness, nakedness or danger or sword as written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, here's this confidence, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love of God which is 
in connection with Jesus Christ. The way that he loved us is in uniting us to Jesus Christ and causing us to be adopted children so that we are brothers and sisters with Christ, joint heirs, Romans says. This is God's unique love for us, and nothing can separate us from that. Four, is it any wonder then that it is crucial for us to understand this very unique and amazing love that God has for us in choosing to make us his own? So Paul prays that God would strengthen us in our faith. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And I'll read the bold part. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul's prayer is that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, that this strength would not be an external strength, and it's not a physical strength, it's a spiritual strength, a confidence, a boldness, an ability to conquer and to overcome. B, our whole relationship to God is based on his love for us. So the prayer is that you may dwell in your hearts through faith, faith that you are being rooted and grounded in love. That's the basis of our confidence. So the prayer is that we would grasp this amazing, glorious, redeeming love of God which he has for his chosen ones. Verse 18 of chapter 3 may have strength to comprehend with all his saints. To comprehend what? Verse 18. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge? Now what in the world does that mean? To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. It is an experiential knowledge that you simply can't explain fully, adequately. You know, I can go on and on about the love of God but we need to experience that. We, we need to take it by faith. We, we need to wrestle with what all that means. And so Paul says, I pray that you'd be strengthened in your faith to understand that you are rooted and grounded in love, that God would open your hearts and minds to understand how much God loves us. And that nothing can take his love away from us. If you think about an earthly relationship, if you, you think about a husband and wife who enter into a marriage relationship, and that's usually based on love. That's based on a mutual commitment that we have to this one that we're going to treat so differently from everyone else. But people talk about falling out of love. People get to the place where they renege on that relationship. They let other things and other people enter in where they should be kept at a distance. So the marriage vows are forsaking all others. <laughs> that, that this unique love for your spouse would stay that. It would be unique and not shared with anyone else. You guard it, you protect it. And when that love is guarded and protected, that, that marriage is strong. And that bond won't be broken. Paul says, I pray that you understand this love of God in which you are rooted and grounded, nothing can break that bond. God's love for us will never cease. His commitment will never waver. Okay, I think I finished page seven. Page eight, fourth, it is important to study, understand, and embrace the doctrine of election to more fully comprehend God's plan for our blessedness. We are sure to be blessed because God predetermined that, he would, that we would belong to him. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He decided, predetermined to make us part of his family. God predetermined that his will, goal, desire, and end would be that we belong to him, would be accomplished and fulfilled. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He had a reason. 
Verse 11 of chapter 1, In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 9, 11, that God's purpose of election might continue. You see, it isn't just that he chose us, and it isn't just that, that he had uh, united us to Christ, but there was a plan behind it. There, there was a goal. There was an end in view. And that was that we would belong to him. That was the reason that he chose us. See, it is God's will that is the basis of God's choice, not man's. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption to himself as one through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The purpose of his will. That terminology, even adoption. We understand adoption where parents make a choice to bring a child into their family, to welcome them into the family. God made a choice of adopting us and welcoming us in his family. Romans 9, 16 comes up with this conclusion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, and then explicitly says these things. First of all, not of blood, meaning that this isn't about who your parents are or having some kind of physical descendancy with Christ, and of course Christ had no children or so on, but it's not by blood. It's not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, I don't know how more clearly that can be said. This is not about man's will, it says. It's about God's will. It's about God's purpose. It's about what God decided. We are just the benefits. We're just reaping the benefits of that. Fifth, it is important to study, understand, embrace the doctrine of election so that God would be appropriately praised for his grace to us. And this is really what is the emphasis of this long sentence. All these other things what I've been saying are true, but it is to result in praise of his grace. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. A, that, that which we are to praise God for is his grace, his grace. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is gracious, for it is not merited or earned in any way. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. Even our faith is not meritorious. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So this isn't a reward that God is granting to us based on our having faith. It isn't God looking down a quarter time, seeing who believes, and then says, okay, they believe, they deserve to be saved, I'll save them. It's saying no. No, that's not how it happened. It's this faith, even, that we have is God's gift to us. He caused us to have faith. He opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Two, the fact that salvation is by grace alone is driven home with a number of assertions. So the reason I took this approach was, was to try to to hang the first three chapters of Ephesians together so that you can get the overview, and then we'll start looking verse by verse. But, so you can see that this salvation is by grace alone, is driven home with a number of assertions. The first is, in verse eight, this is not your own doing. Okay, this, this isn't what you have accomplished. This isn't about what you have done. Secondly, it's the gift of God. 
And thirdly, it's not a result of works. Therefore, we can make no claims for deservedness in being saved. Ephesians 2.9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one can take credit for their salvation. No one can look another person in the eye and say to a person who's going to be going to hell, I'm different, I don't deserve that. We have no reason to boast. We, we have no reason to give glory to ourselves. It's praise to the glory of his grace. We can't take any credit. None. For our being saved. It's a gift that God gave to us. B. That grace is said to be glorious. Glorious. To the praise of his glorious grace. Number one, that is that it is most, wor- most worthy, deserving, appropriate for praise. Once again, this doctrine is to be resulting in God's being praised. And now I want to unpack what is meant by a glorious grace. Why is this grace so glorious? Well, the text tells us. <clears throat> Number two, it is a glorious grace because it's a costly grace. It came at the expense of his own son, whom he loved dearly, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And notice the way in which Jesus is referred to. It's his beloved son. God sent his son to save us, and it wasn't because God was punishing his son or didn't care about his son that he had him die on the cross. This was his beloved son. God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This Grace came at the expense of his son. B, it came at the expense of the beloved son's life. Verse 7, we have been redeemed through his blood. It's talking about the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that's the basis of the redemption from our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Jesus Christ died. That's the way in which God has gloriously, gloriously shown us a costly grace. It was at the expense of his own son. It is a glorious grace for it is undeserved. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So rather than being deserving of this grace, by our righteousness or goodness or our faith, it says that we have redeemed by his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. You get to chapter 2, it says, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. It's an observed grace. Fourth, it is a glorious grace because it's such an abundant grace. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This is a, a rich grace, is what is being said. God is wealthy in the amount of grace that he, that he has. He's rich in grace. God is so wealthy in his grace that he will never spend it all. It will never be exhausted. God's bank account, bank account of grace will never run out. He's rich in grace. Five, it's a glorious grace because it's given so freely. Ephesians 1.8, which he lavished upon us lavished upon us. Love that word lavish. It means just to, to extend to overflowing. You know, we, we think of things that are lavish, they're over the top. They're over the top. To put it mildly, God is not stingy with his grace. It's one thing to be rich. And it's quite another to take those riches 
and lavishly give them away. Just extend them freely. God is not stingy with his grace. He doesn't dole it out, little bits and pieces at a time, but he gives us all the grace that we need. Nor is he reluctant to give us his grace. He doesn't hold it back, is what is being said in these verses where it says he's rich in grace. He lavishes grace. It isn't that we have to beg for this grace. It isn't that we have to grovel for this grace. In fact, we didn't even ask for this grace. He decided to be gracious to us. And he will never stop being gracious to us. For he will never run out of grace. And he will never become stingy with his grace. But rather he's going to lavish it upon us. Number six, it's a glorious grace because God has revealed it to us. In which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This plan that he had before the foundation of the world. He lets us in on it. He tells us about it. This is this doctrine. So that we might understand how gracious God really is. He doesn't keep it a secret. Number seven, it's a glorious grace because God has given us the capacity to understand it. Ephesians 1.8, which he's Ravished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight. It is due to the fact that the wisdom and insight comes from God that Paul prays that God would give his people even more wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul is writing to believers. He said, when I heard of your faith, I'm, I'm praying for you that you would understand this, that you would comprehend this. This is the book of Ephesians. This is what we're trying to understand. This is what we're trying to comprehend in the first three chapters. And the next three, last three chapters are application. It's how this affects our lives when we really believe this and know this. How it transforms us. But Paul prays that we would come to really get a hold of this. Eight, it is glorious grace for it is all in keeping with God's purpose. He thought of it. He designed it. Ephesians 1.9, make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Number nine, it is a glorious grace for it is all accomplished through Christ from beginning to end. Ephesians 1.9, make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time. God planned it. God accomplished it. So this grace is that it is in no way dependent upon us. There, there is nothing for us to do to experience this grace. It is a glorious grace for it is, it is an extensive grace. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance and been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things, everything. So there is no area of our life to which this grace does not apply. It isn't that God forgives a certain groups of sin. It isn't that God is working in certain areas of our lives to bring us to himself. But in this rich and lavish grace of God and in this plan of God, it covers every aspect of our lives. 
That's why Romans says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For his sovereignty extends over all things, but not only does his sovereignty extend over all things, his grace extends over all things, including our sin. So the results of our lives so often even in a temporal way, even in a temporal setting. People don't experience the consequences of their sin. One of the things that uh, I run into with premarital counseling is people who want to marry people who don't know the Lord, and the scripture says that we shouldn't do that, of course, and Yet so many people know people that didn't marry someone of the faith, and it worked out. How many people know somebody who didn't marry a person of the faith, and it worked out? Okay? A lot of people. A lot of people. That's grace. That's grace. To decide, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, not what God wants to do. I'm going to Forget all the admonitions. I'm not going to take into the extent the consequences that could come. And that's just one example. I think every one of us tonight, if we are going to be honest with ourselves and think about our lives and what we deserve by the choices we've made, we can say God has been gracious to us. God has preserved us. God has kept us. God has treated us in ways in which we don't deserve. And that's just this life. What Ephesians is talking about is spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. When we stand before him, there's not one of us to get what we deserve. Instead, we get his grace. His grace. And when we stand before him, our sins mean nothing. They are taken away. They are as far removed as the east is from the west. But that's not true of all mankind. It's true of those who are united to Christ. Those who belong to him. So see, God will in fact be praised for his glorious grace when we are before him. Ephesians 1.12 So that we who were the first burned to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is when we are in heaven. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. There are believers on the face of this earth who do not believe in the doctrine of election. There will be no one in heaven who doesn't believe in the doctrine of election. I'm not saying that that's going to keep you out of heaven. I'm saying people's minds are going to change. When they stand before God, and our eyes and mind are really opened for the first time to understand the things that are hid from us, we're just going to be flabbergasted at God's goodness and grace. How kind he's been towards us. How we have so belittled his goodness to us. This morning I was talking about reading the scriptures. Just taking his word for granted and his grace and giving us the scriptures. The, the grace that we have been brought up in Christian homes. The grace that we have heard. And not only that we heard it, but we believed. God is so good to us. D, let us give praise and honor and glory to God now for all that he does for us, in us, and through us. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. 
To him be glory in the church. We don't expect the world to love our Christ. We don't expect the world to serve our Christ. We don't expect the world to bring glory to our Christ. But the church should. The church should. Now. And part of that is just recognizing new and afresh and more fully how God and God alone deserves the praise and the glory for our salvation. It's a marvelous doctrine. A, God and God alone is to be praised for the great salvation that we enjoy. God is to be praised and glorified for his great grace in making us his own. We're to be assured of our acceptance with God because he chose us to be holy without blame when we stand before him in judgment. We are assured of experiencing every spiritual blessing because of our relationship to Christ that he has established. It isn't because we've been reading our Bible through in a year. It isn't because of commitments that we have made. It's solely because of what Christ has done that every spiritual blessing comes to us. E, a relationship that is a result of God having chosen us to be adopted as his children even before the world was created. That's kind of an overview of the first three chapters and in particularly verses 1 to 21. So I'll be picking up at 22 when we actually meet next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your great grace. We want to give you the glory that is due unto your name. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that salvation is a gift from beginning to end. A gift that you decided to give to us. A gift that you saw too that we would receive and accept. A gift that you will never take back. A gift that just keeps on giving. A gift that will come to its complete fulfillment when we stand before you and experience every single blessing. When all the curse of sin has been removed, when every tear has been wiped away, when every pain and every sorrow is gone, and all that we know will be blessedness, all because of Christ and what he has done for us. And we will give you the honor and glory and praise. Help us to give you that honor and glory and praise now. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And we are dismissed.